0: Arsenal for Democracy is available twice a week. There's a free episode at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple or Stitcher each weekend and a midweek bonus episode at patreon.com slash Democracy, available for $5 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is yours.
1: This land is my
0: land.
1: California, the New York island,
0: the
1: redwood forest,
0: the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 379, recorded on June 1st, 2021. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel.
1: Hi, Bill. So on this week's bonus episode, we are discussing Lewis Freeland Post, who was the assistant labor secretary during the post-World War I Red Scare and acting labor secretary during the 1920 deportation craze. We previously mentioned him during last week's bonus episode on the Red Arc, as well as our recent episode on the Emergency Quotas Act of 1921, and we wanted to talk more about what an unusual figure he was. Specifically, we should explore his role as a counterbalance to the anti-radical fanaticism of A. Mitchell Palmer and J. Edgar Hoover. As we pointed out last week, it bears repeating that although the Justice Department carried out the Palmer raids, the deportations were under the authority of the Immigration Bureau— which was part of the Labor Department. Post used his powers as acting Labor Secretary to thoroughly investigate the conditions of the Palmer Raids and to extend constitutional rights to the potential deportees, eventually securing the release of many of the restees, Though his views weren't always popular, his convictions eventually swayed public sentiment, leading to investigations on the Palmer Raids. So uh, a little bit of his background, his early life. Um, He was born on a New Jersey farm in 1849, and though he was too young to serve in the Civil War, was imbued with abolitionist zeal. As a boy, he talked to the free black handyman who worked for his grandfather and noticed that the man had to eat at a separate table. As a young man, Post spent two years working in the South during Reconstruction, and he saw how white Southerners foiled all possibility of advancement for the former slaves who hoped for equal rights at last. He served as a court reporter in a series of South Carolina trials in which Ku Klux Klansmen were convicted of murder, only to see President Ulysses S. Grant pardon most of the Klansmen several months later. He returned north, where he became a prosecutor and then a private attorney in New York City. The work left him uninspired, but he acquired a keen sense of the law that he was able to put to extraordinary use decades later. And the source for that was that, the New Yorker article that I referenced last week um, when America tried to deport its radicals. Um, so, after he left um, practicing law, he served under the first US Labor Secretary, William B. Wilson, from 1913 to March 1921, serving for both Wilson administrations. And we covered William B. Wilson in a full episode in November 2020. Um, and all of these links will be provided. In the show notes for this episode, as he um, was working as the assistant uh, labor secretary, he really saw um, this anti-immigrant, anti-radical fervor kind of building up and um, quoting from a political article, jarring economic instability alongside very real labor unrest and radical incitement at home offered immigration opponents an opening the unrest of 1919 led to a Red Scare that saw thousands of immigrant radicals deported and many more arrested and imprisoned. Louis Post, the Assistant Secretary of Labor, deemed the reaction a, quote, deportation delirium. And as we mentioned last week, the Buford, or the Red Ark, departed with many deportees and headed for Russia in December of 1919. And uh, two and a half months after it sailed, and just as A. Mitchell Palmer and J. Edgar Hoover were hoping to deport many more shiploads of newly arrested, quote, undesirables, the Secretary of Labor went on leave to tend to an illness in the family. His replacement resigned, and a 70-year-old man named Louis F. Post became the acting Secretary of Labor. When he was in charge of the Department of Labor, Post proved a shrewd investigator and decisive reformer. When he discovered that many of the raids had been made without warrants, or with warrants based on faulty information, he invalidated nearly 3,000 of the arrests. He found that prisoners had been questioned without being informed that their answers could be used as evidence against them, and without being given access to lawyers. In response, he ruled that any alien subjected to the deportation process was entitled to full constitutional safeguards. Post learned that many people taken in the raids hadn't known that one of the communist parties listed them as members. These factions had seceded from the Socialist Party and were intent on claiming as large a membership as possible. He ordered the release of many of those still held in immigration prisons, like the one on Ellis Island, and he slashed the amount of bail for others. Palmer and Hoover were furious. So, Bill, did you want to go into a little bit more detail um, about um, the Palmer raids and about the uh, restrictions on immigration happening at this time?
0: Yes, so as we talked about on our bonus episode last week regarding the Red Arc, Soviet Arc, Buford, whatever you want to call it, um, which, as Rachel said, uh, left for the Soviet Union, uh, or more properly, White Finland and then the Soviet Union by uh, overland route uh, in the end of uh, 1919 and into the beginning of 1920. Uh, There was widespread attempted arrests of various anarchist figures, communist figures, suspected, etc. And as we talked about last week, a lot of people who were just basically Russians who were part of various sort of Russian social groups uh, for immigrants, newly arrived immigrants in the United States. And um, one of the things that, uh, you know, came up as we were researching that episode was regarding the uh, Immigration Act of 1918, Um, And there's an interesting quote uh, from the Wikipedia page for that as well. After more than 4,000 alleged anarchists were arrested for deportation under the Act, the Department of Labor released most of those arrested. Acting Secretary of Labor Louis Friedland Post was threatened with impeachment for his department's findings in favor of continued resident in the U.S. of persons charged in deportation cases. However, it should be noted that a total of 556 persons were eventually deported under the Immigration Act of 1918, and we're going to come back to that point in a few minutes. But this sort of short paragraph on that article, again, piqued our interest. of this guy that had now come up in several of our episodes, uh, and so we wanted to talk about uh, Post more directly. And now Rachel has covered a lot of his background and some of the work that he did, But apparently his sort of uh, seemingly uh, very progressive views within the uh, Department of Labor had attracted some pretty negative attention from other parts of the government uh, before he even took over as the acting uh, Secretary of Labor temporarily. Uh, So quoting now from the Louis F. Post Wikipedia article itself, as early as January 1920, the Bureau of Investigation began compiling a file on Post and his political leanings. Uh, but failed to find substantive evidence of radical connections on his part. Nevertheless, the House Committee on Immigration and Naturalization compiled a sensational report of Post's deportation decisions. When it leaked, the press made much of the affair, what Post later called a newspaper cyclone of misrepresentation, though some coverage supported him. Some congressmen traded speeches on his culpability, committee chairman Albert Johnson of Washington State attacking Post and Congressman George Huddleston of Alabama defending him. On April 15th, 1920, Kansas Congressman Homer Hawke accused Post of having abused his power and called for his impeachment. The House Committee on Rules planned to ask the president to remove Post instead of impeaching him, so Post requested and was granted a chance to, de- to testify before Congress in his own defense he successfully defended his actions on May 7th through 8th, attacking Attorney General Palmer and others. In a dramatic exchange, Congressman Edward W. Pooh, a Democratic supporter of the anti-radical campaign, praised Post's actions, quote, I believe you have followed your sense of duty absolutely, and left the room in stunned silence. The Rules Committee took no further action. After the Attorney General had spent two days reading a statement in his defense, the New York Evening Post, gave Lewis Post the victory. Quote, The simple truth is that Lewis F. Post deserves the gratitude of every American for his courageous and determined stand on behalf of our fundamental rights. It is too bad that in making this stand, he found himself at cross purposes with the Attorney General, but Mr. Palmer's complaint lies with the Constitution and not against Mr. Post. Now, this did not please everyone, and the American Legion continued its reactionary uh, work that it was starting to do. Uh, at the time, and continued to seek post dismissal as late as uh, December 31st, 1920, uh, just a few months before the end of uh, President Wilson's administration. And the White House responded with a letter quoting Labor Secretary Wilson, who endorsed Post's actions. And again, to clarify, President Wilson was the president and his Labor Secretary was also named Wilson, as we covered on our William B. Wilson episode Uh, And so Labor Secretary Wilson's letter detailed the constitutional principles that guided Post and praised his adherence to department policies. Quote, we will not deport anyone simply because he has been accused or because he is suspected of being a red. We have no authority to do so under the law. Mr. Post, I am satisfied ranks among the ablest and best administrative officers in the government service. Now, I want to pause here and note again, if you did miss our episode on William B. Wilson, it's kind of important to understand that William B. Wilson was one of the most progressive members of the administration as well, and came from a fairly radical union organizing background himself, Uh, and in general, uh, between the two of them, that department resisted a lot of the worst abuses uh, coming out of people like A. Mitchell Palmer and some of the other folks. We also did an episode uh, on the uh, American Protective League during the war, and we want to emphasize and underscore here the sheer level of sort of overall ambient paranoia and generally quite frightening overreactions that were happening within the government to people who were suspected of being whatever it was, whether it was pro-German or later pro-Bolshevik or just even anarchist. And this uh, was still kind of in effect at this point in 1920. Um, It had started to subside somewhat, which is why you can see some of the newspaper coverage was favorable, especially after Lewis Post defended himself before Congress. Um, But it really was an act of bravery, I think, and courage to get up there and defend this so vocally, and also to take those actions to stop those huge numbers of deportations um, for, you know, based on very flimsy grounds. Although, again, we will be getting back to that in just a minute. Now, returning again for one more bit from the Wikipedia article on Lewis F. Post, in retirement in 1923, he published The Deportations Delirium of 1920, a personal narrative of an historic official experience. And this memoir was a detailed account of the raids, arrests, and deportations of 1919 through 1920. He called the entire effort, quote, a stupendous and cruel fake. Uh, He asserted that his actions had been vindicated with the passage of time and that, quote, no substantially erroneous decision of mine has yet been specified. Most certainly, and without qualifications, may this be said of my cancellation decisions, and it was for these alone that my official fidelity was clamorously questioned. Every attempt to show even one erroneous cancellation decision has utterly failed, end quote. Now, Rachel, I know you wanted to talk about how there is some question still uh, regarding kind of what it was that, you know, that there there's these high constitutional principles that are being cited. Um, but, you know, there, what what was his actual sort of motivation? And, and what um, did he really accomplish with stopping the deportations to the extent that he did, or to the lack of extent that he did, as we saw with things like the Soviet arc?
1: Yeah, so I found a JSTOR article from the Journal of American Ethnic History titled Wrench in the Deportation Machine, Louis F. Post's objection to mechanized Red Scare bureaucracy, and quoting from the abstract, um, although this action has long been remembered as a triumph of U.S. civil liberties, this article argues that Post's objections to the deportations were grounded in his concern with the growing capabilities of mechanized bureaucracy and the tendency of these managerial technologies to discourage informed adjudication. Rather than opposing laws that would allow for the deportation of political radicals, Post vocally protested the, quote, sign on the dotted line style of governance he was expected to enact. As a result of his inaction, participants at every level of the emerging gatekeeping and immigration system objected to Post's inability to let the deportation machine run. Um, So there's kind of a a counter narrative in this abstract where um, I think, in the popular narrative, um, it's said that Post is very pro-immigration, pretty much unlimited immigration. And so this is kind of a, a different facet that we're seeing in an argument that he was just more against the deportation machine. He wasn't against deportation per se. It was just kind of the rubber stamping um, process that that uh, Palmer and Hoover were were. Um, advocating for. And we're so angry with him for for going against that. So it's interesting that there is this kind of counter narrative, whereas the popular history has been that it was very valorous and he was just so convinced that uh, unlimited immigration was, was the right way to go. But um, so it's kind of, it, that kind of throws that na- popular narrative into doubt.
0: Now, more specifically, in his role leading the Immigration uh, Bureau and various other functions in the Labor Department as the uh, uh, assistant labor secretary, as we talked about last week at some length uh, with the Red Ark or the Soviet Ark and the deportations of Russian-born anarchists and communists from the United States or the most famous one, I should say, I mean, his name is personally on some of those deportation orders. So again, it casts a little bit of shade and throws a little bit of doubt onto sort of his own self-narrative around this. Um, I mean, I think you could kind of look at it in various different angles, but certainly I know you wanted to talk about Emma Goldman specifically again with regard to Lewis Post.
1: Yeah, I found an article from the Illinois State Society um, blog about um, Lewis Post Um, it it kind of pointed out some of these contradictions. Um, Quoting from that, uh, he was himself considered a radical and a social friend of the anarchist Emma Goldman, but it was Post who signed the deportation order to exile Goldman during the Red Scare. Goldman never forgave him and wrote with bitter antagonism toward Post in her 1935 autobiography. So yeah, like you said, that really does cast some doubt on on his kind of self-narrative where he puts himself as, This great opposition to the deportation delirium. But he did end up signing uh, probably all 556 deportation orders um, that happened around that time.
0: And again, one of the critiques made in that article that you were just uh, referring to a few minutes ago seems to be that his main objection was that you know they had cast too wide of a net it had been too hasty of a process and that they you know kind of like people who object to auto pen signing of various bad bills or military orders or executive actions it's like well is your objection to the content of the order or is your objection to the fact that it's being done in a new sort of automated and bureaucratic way that you don't agree with and if you go through the process and decide that this person you know, duly falls under the expulsion requirements, you're just going to go for it. And apparently he was uh, willing to do that in the case of Emma Goldman. I think that's interesting as well that he was supposedly friends with Emma Goldman before deporting her and that he was viewed as this radical. I mean, he himself, uh, we didn't really get into it on this episode about his sort of views in terms of Georgism and single tax stuff, um, which by today's standard, I don't think we would be considering particularly radical. But that seemed to be sort of the version of radicalism that he personally uh, ascribed to and and viewed himself in that way. Um, But uh, that may account for why the Bureau of Investigation was compiling files on him before he even took over as the uh, acting Secretary of Labor uh, for a bit in 1920 while the Labor Secretary Wilson was out on leave for a family medical emergency. So the last thing I wanted to talk about, uh, Rachel, is just to go back to a uh, University of Vermont uh, thesis paper that we had also looked at for the episode on the Soviet arc. And uh, I wanted to quote one line uh, from that. And I think that also maybe helps square some of the circle here in terms of what he was attempting to do with his protests and so forth, which is not necessarily some sort of hero of immigration, uh, but rather going in a different direction, uh, which did have a very positive effect. Even if some people were certainly deported, uh, overall it could have been substantially worse, and this, I think, gets to that point. Uh, Quote, while initially garnering widespread support, by mid-1920, the Palmer Raids became known as a civil rights disaster when Lewis Post, the acting Secretary of Labor, who had been accused by Palmer of being too lenient on those arrested, testified to Congress about the unconstitutionality of the arrests and deportations. So again, getting back to that point that this was against civil rights, against the Constitution, not proper forms and, you know, being filled out in the right way, etc. And, you know, you can criticize him as that other article that you mentioned did uh, for, you know, not going far enough. Uh, But on the other hand, taking on this very courageous act in his later years at age 70 and preventing thousands of people who had been arrested from being deported. Uh, Obviously, as we talked about last week, hundreds and hundreds did get deported, but thousands of people were potentially in the queue to be deported and were saved basically solely by the actions of Louis F. Post. So not necessarily the most straightforward legacy, but I think on balance, uh, he did a very good thing. Um, Rachel, any sort of closing thoughts on post?
1: Yeah, I think it 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 bears uh emphasis that he was 70 at this time and uh the um the American Ethnic History Journal article did call him a progressive turned bureaucrat. So I think he I think there's kind of a natural mellowing that happens as you age. So he probably wasn't looking to make a whole bunch of waves in kind of his Later years. And I think at, there is kind of a, a trust in the process that kind of happens. So I think that's kind of where he was coming from. He was um, trusting in the process and really making sure all the I's were dotted and T's were crossed. And that it was very impressive that he did extend those constitutional protections to those, deport, those potential deportees, because I think in a different administration, There wouldn't be that kind of consideration and that extension of of um, civil rights or constitutional rights extended to those arrestees.
0: All right. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on this week to talk on the bonus episode about Louis F. Post, the uh, assistant secretary of labor uh, under the Woodrow Wilson administration.
1: Thanks. It's always a pleasure.